Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again, and thank you for joining us on the astronomy podcast known as Space Nuts. My name's Andrew Dunkley, and with me as always is Dr. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hi, Fred. Hey, the original Space Nuts. Yes. How are you indeed. doing, Andrew? I'm yeah. well, very well. <laughs> yeah, I think we've been doing this for uh, 18 months Two. or so now. Yeah, that's right. I know. Yeah. It's, um... But, you know, <laughs> if you go back to when we were doing it on radio, it's... Oh, Oh, look. 20 years? It's before the origin of the universe. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. Now, today, Fred, we're going to be talking about twinkling quasars, which uh, it sounds rather interesting. Uh, I don't know much about them, but I'm sure once you've explained it, everyone will be an expert. And, uh, we're, go and we're going to uh, try and find some lost satellites, which... Um, could be a big problem in the scheme of things. And we've had some questions from Brad in Indiana, who uh, only recently discovered us, and uh, it's prompted a few thoughts in his mind. So we might see if we can solve his questions a little later. But first, Fred, twinkling quasars. What indeed are uh, twinkling quasars and where do we find them? I'm guessing in space. Uh, that's absolutely right, yes. And in fact, a long way away in space, because the thing about quasars is they are... Uh, generally very distant objects. Um, that, that's an interesting aspect because we don't really see quasars in the nearby universe. And what that's telling us is that they are kind of extinct now. Quasars are no longer uh, phenomena that seem to occur. They seem to be uh, very much the property of fairly youthful galaxies. So I sometimes call quasars delinquent galaxies because what they are is young galaxies which have a very voracious uh, and active black hole at their centre. The black hole is gobbling up lots of uh, gas and dust and probably a few baby stars as well in a swirling disk of material around it. And as this stuff swirls around, um, the, uh, the material emits, uh, well, a number of different kinds of radiation, X-rays, for example, infrared rays, and most notably radio waves. And so quasars have been observed, uh, in fact, they were first discovered by observing them with radio telescopes. So this is a story about very distant objects in the universe being observed with radio telescopes. We don't really need to know more about the quasars. Uh, what's more interesting is what happens to their radio waves as they make their way to Earth. Because mm -hmm. uh, we've known for a number of years, well, probably 30 years, that quasars, when we observe them with radio telescopes, they twinkle in the sky. And by that, I mean their, their brightness, um, their radio brightness rises and falls over matters of a few hours. And it's a kind of analogue of the twinkling that we see when we look at stars 
um, you know, stand outside uh, in Dubbo or Sydney or Indiana or wherever you happen to be, you will, especially if you see stars low down on the horizon, you'll often see them twinkling. Mm. And that twinkle is not a property of the star itself. It's caused by the fact that the light has come through the Earth's atmosphere. The Earth's atmosphere is turbulent. It's got <clears throat> pockets of warm and cold air in it. And they uh, basically focus and defocus the light from the star, uh, causing the twinkling effect. It's very, very pretty, See, although it's, it's the death knell for astronomers. Yeah, well, it's kind of uh, dispelled a myth I'd, I always believed as a kid. Um, I don't know who told me, but they said if it's twinkling, it's a star. If it's not twinkling, it's a planet. Now, um, th th there's, there's a degree of truth in that. Is that right? Um, yes, because... Um, particularly the larger planets like Jupiter and Saturn, they tend not to twinkle. And the reason, uh, it's a complicated reason, but it's because they have, <clears throat> unlike a star, which is effectively a point source, a point of light, planets have actually what we call an angular diameter. They have a size, if you point a telescope at them, you can actually see a disk. Mm. And what that does is it inhibits the twinkling. Um, the exception to that is Mercury, which is uh, a small planet and is often seen low down in the sky. I've seen Mercury twinkling many times, so you can't guarantee that a non-twinkling object is a planet. But it's certainly true for, for um, Saturn and, and Jupiter. Anyway, um, going back to the twinkling, as I said, it's caused by this disturbance in the atmosphere. Now, the twinkling of quasars is caused by a kind of analogous thing. Uh, it's as the uh, radio radiation from the quasar passes through uh, pockets of warmer and cooler gas in our own galaxy. Now, the gas in between the stars, we call it the interstellar medium, uh, that is very rarefied. It's not a <clears throat> sort of high-pressure gas like uh, the Earth's atmosphere. It's a very, very tenuous gas, but it's still there's enough of it to have this twinkling effect on the on the radiation coming from quasars. So, so much has been sort of reasonably well understood. But what is more puzzling is that uh, from time to time, one or two quasars seem to exhibit sudden and quite rare outbursts of really violent twinkling, okay. where their brightness uh, increases dramatically and decreases dramatically. It's called um, violent twinkling. That's that's what they they, they they give this term the term to it. So it's very a very um, almost startling effect, which has not been understood. So what's now happened is a group of scientists, uh, principally in Sydney, in fact, although there are collaborators in the USA as well, they've used one of the Australian radio telescopes, the Australia Telescope Compact Array, um, to look at uh, twinkling stars, just, beg your pardon, twinkling quasars, and analyse the, the, the way the twinkles work. And they can tell that what's happening is the radiation is passing through uh, not a sort of blob of, of warmer uh, material in the interstellar medium, but something that's shaped much, much more like a piece of spaghetti, something long and thin oh. uh, as, the, as the radiation passes through it. The next thing they did was uh, decided they'd have a look at these quasars with, uh, with an optical telescope, uh, you know, one that uses visible light. In fact, they were planning to use the Keck telescope in Hawaii. But as soon as they did that, they realised that their twinkling quasar was very close uh, to a bright star, uh, a, a fairly youthful bright star. 
uh, <clears throat> actually a, a hot star by the name of Al Kahim. It's a bright enough star that it's got an Arabic name. It was known to early people. Wow. Um, and and then they uh, realized that another twinkling quasar is close in the sky to another bright young star. Actually, the star, uh, the star Vega, which is uh, which is also a hot star. Um, so they've suddenly twigged the fact that <clears throat> these quasars. They're not close in space to these stars, but their line of sight is close to these hot stars. Um, and that kind of caused them to think about whether these stars themselves might have something around them that is actually disturbing the light of the quasar. And to cut a long story short, they've built this theory that suggests that, um, that these stars have almost like spikes of material uh, coming from them. Uh, in fact, it's, it's slightly, I'm, I'm describing it in a slightly un, um, incorrect way because what they envisage is blobs of material um, coming from the, the, these young stars which have got a long trail streaming out behind them and that's being blown away by the ultraviolet radiation from the star. So if you imagine all these spikes of material kind of pointing inwards towards the star, that is what they're hypothesizing. That would certainly solve the quasar twinkling problem. Mm. Uh, however, that's news to most stellar scientists, that's to say the people who study stars, because we, while we expect to see these uh, inward pointing filaments, um, we only expect to see them in very old stars, stars that are surrounded by a cloud of gas known as a planetary nebula. We see many examples of that. Um, so it's uh, a, a kind of a step in the dark to uh, postulate that these things appear around young stars as well. Uh, they're too faint to be seen. We can only detect them by the quasar twinkling. So it's a very nice piece of work, uh, which is sure to set a lot of people debating whether it's actually the fact or not. But twinkling quasars, it sounds like good, uh, good news to me. <laughs> and as always, with a new astronomical discovery, a whole array of new questions now need to be asked and answered. So... You know, it's a never-ending cycle, isn't it? It is. Uh, that's right. Um, so a discovery like this will indeed prompt a lot of research, particularly among the, the you know, the, the, the star community, uh, because astronomy is divided into different branches, uh, who'll, be, who'll be looking at these things in detail and saying, how can, how can we make stars do that? So um, a, a, lot of, a lot of work to come. OK. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Roger, you're live. are here also. Space Nuts. Okay, Fred, let's uh, see if we can find some lost satellites uh, which are making the news at the moment. What kind of satellites are we talking about? <laughs> Baby ones. <laughs> <laughs> little ones, cubes. Yeah, little ones. The, the CubeSats, that's right. So these are um, very much the trend in, uh, in, in space science uh, because these things which are about the size of a loaf of bread are relatively cheap to make and to develop uh, they're, I mean, they don't cost hundreds of millions of dollars. They do cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, though. It's still quite a uh, high-tech business. But CubeSats like this are starting to become useful for all kinds of um, environmental research uh, to try and understand the atmosphere of the Earth at very high levels uh, and, and other, um, you know, other um, applications as well. So you might remember about, uh, I suppose, a month or so ago, uh, in fact, in May uh, um, this year, um, a, a whole tranche of 28 of these little things were deployed from the International Space Station. Mm -hmm. Uh, they they included uh, three spacecraft, three little baby satellites made by scientists in Australia at uh, 
uh, University of New South Wales, University of Sydney, uh, and the Australian National University. There may have been other collaborators as well. So three of those uh, all went into space. They were all deployed, and then they all disappeared, oh. um, uh, which kind of upset people quite a lot. Um, the, uh, the last thing you want to do is spend a few years of your life building something that's taken into space and then never seen again. Yeah, it's, not, and so, it's not something that hasn't happened before either. It has, it's it's absolutely major right. catastrophes here yeah, and there. Uh, yeah. And but, but, so what's the theory? Well, so that's exactly what the, the, the guys did. The engineers who were working on these uh, satellites decided that what had probably happened was that there had not been enough power to deploy the, uh, the uh, solar panels, uh, which, of course, provide more power. Right. And so whilst the, the, these things were probably emitting radio signals, they were probably very weak. And so um, what they did was set about a search to try and find a big radio dish that could be used to try and detect uh, their, their uh, errant spacecraft. And there's a long story attached to that, but they wound up talking to a radio amateur who was uh, it's a Dutchman um, who had access to a very large and essentially now redundant uh, radio telescope in the Netherlands. Mm. Uh, and he volunteered to help them uh, to help them find their their missing spacecraft using this radio dish. Uh, the the problem was that he has a nine to five job, so he could only do it on Saturdays. <laughs> and so, so they had to wait. They had to wait till Saturday. Uh, but actually, it worked. Um, they found the first of their missing radio, uh, some missing satellites. Uh, they picked it up with the radio telescope. They were able to deploy the, uh, the, the the solar panels, and now it's in perfect working order. But they couldn't find the others. So and how, they, ma how many are we talking about? They had three. Okay. They had three, yeah. So the first one was Tick. Uh, that, of course, encouraged these guys. They were ecstatic about that, as you would be. Yeah. Um, and so the, the, then they you know, set off then looking for the next one. Um, and this defeated them. Uh, it basically they couldn't find it at all and uh, th what they started wondering was w whether they were pointing this um, this Saturday antenna in in the right place in the sky uh, th they're tracked by the North American Aerospace Defense Command or NORAD that's where the data comes from as to where they are and uh, they track everything you know that's bigger than a few inches across um, the, including the CubeSats uh, and they, they were telling them to point at a particular place in the sky, but there was nothing there. But apparently um, somebody thought, well, I wonder if they've, you know, if they've mixed up the labelling of the satellites or something like that. Oh. <laughs> so they looked down the list of other, uh, of other satellites that had been launched at the same time, and they pointed uh, their Dutch antenna to what was labelled as the University of Colorado's CubeSat and and found a weak signal from their CubeSat, oh. from their own one. So it had been misidentified. The, the, the Australian one had been given the label University of Colorado, and so they hadn't even bothered looking at it because they thought it was the wrong, the wrong satellite. You've got to wonder but, how that could happen. 
Yeah, it's a bit of a worry, isn't it? Because it's the the Defence Radar Command as well. Uh, Never mind, we we won't go there. Um, But but that, yeah, and they found, once again, a weak signal that was from their own satellite, University of New South Wales, in fact. So uh, what they did was they um, basically, the the next Saturday, they had to kind of wait until Saturdays to do all this. They uh, They sent a signal up, deployed it, and away it goes. That's the second one has been found. Okay. The... The jury is still out on the third one. Um, they haven't found that yet. So well, the, the aliens the, have got that one. Well, maybe, yeah. or it's on its way to Mars or something like that. I don't know. But but two out of three is not bad going, uh, considering that they had a score of zero out of three to start with. Yeah. So it's a lovely story and and speaks of um, Australian and Dutch ingenuity, uh, which are which are things that I think are fantastic. Yeah, so well, there's a Dutch Australian collaboration in my family. My wife is uh, of Dutch heritage, so. There you go. There you go. Uh, absolutely <laughs> nothing to do with what you're talking about. Uh, just remind us again what these CubeSats are supposed to be doing up there. Is, it, so, is this the atmospheric analysis? I think that's project? right. I think yeah. it's correct. They're, they're looking at the uh, cyanosphere, the the uh, you know the high atmosphere region. So uh, very useful scientific work, basically. And are they planning to send up any more? Um, I, th- I think they will be. Uh, it's a fairly big job doing one of these things. As I said, it's not cheap either. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, the, the, one of the things about these CubeSats is that they decay fairly quickly in terms of their orbit. So they're not littering space with a lot of space junk. They're in orbits that will bring them back down to Earth in actually a matter of months, I think. So time is of the essence in, in uh, trying to get these things going. You know, if you've got a problem like this, yeah. you don't want to be dawdling. No, but now that they've figured it out, they'll probably get it right next time, we hope. One would hope so, yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. What a matchup! And what a team, Mike. Metro PCS and the iPhone SE for $0 on a network that covers 99% of people in the U.S. Oh, impressive. Play with the best. Switch to MetroPCS and get a 32-gig iPhone SE for $0. MetroPCS. Coverage not available in some areas, plus sales tax and $10 activation fee. Claim based on talk and text. Not valid for active numbers currently on our T-Mobile network or active on MetroPCS in the past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Finally, Fred, some uh, questions from the peanut gallery. Um, well, we're space nuts, so they can be peanuts. Why not? Uh, and Brad from Indiana has uh, got in touch with us after recently discovering the podcast. Uh, he's got two questions, and uh, we might as well see if we can solve both his problems. Um, he's uh, firstly asking, uh, what do you think is beyond the outside of space? Is there more space, or is there space inside another space inside another one or something to that effect now you and i have actually discussed this little problem before and the question may be answered by the potential for multiple universes and i do remember recently reading that they may have actually found evidence of that but um that's still speculation but no what is there space outside space what's outside space fred um, yeah, look, you know, speculation is the right word for this because we really don't know. Um, uh, you, you're right about the, the, you know, the idea of multiple universes. But let me just um, describe what the, the sort of basic model of the universe is, what you might call a standard model, which includes a Big Bang at the beginning. Uh, that means that at that uh, instant, the instant of the Big Bang, not only 
the material of the universe was created, but space itself was created as well. And, and time. Uh, and time, mm. that's right. So that's T0, the Big Bang. Um, it, what that means is that uh, all of space is in, in sort of enclosed in a universe which started off at that specific time. And there isn't anything defined beyond it. And indeed, the, the, the main measurements that we can make suggest that the universe is, in fact, the same in all directions. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, th there's no obvious place where there's more of it than somewhere else. There, there are clusters of galaxies and things like that. Generally speaking, we assume that the universe is the same in all directions. We can we can detect that. We can also detect that it's expanding uh, and that the expansion is getting faster. Um, we, we also can see a horizon. That's to say there is a region beyond which we can not see. And so, in a sense, the first bit of Brad's question is correct. What is beyond the outside of space? Is there more space? Well, if you say, you know, that the horizon represents what we can see, and in beyond that there is an invisible region, well, we, we do believe that beyond that there is more space because we think the universe is much bigger than the, just this bubble within which we, uh, which we sit that we can see. But um, the, the, I suppose what you might call contemporary thinking has a number of ideas that suggest that maybe that's not the full story, that perhaps our universe is just one of many universes which sit in some sort of higher dimensional space, um, what Doctor Who calls the void, mm -hmm. but what physicists actually call the bulk. This is uh, the, the, so, some sort of higher dimensional space with different universes in it. That, that idea, I think, has lost a bit of its appeal over the last decade or so. But a number of other ideas suggest that th there is a single universe, but with uh, little um, kind, of, kind of miniature universes within it, of which ours is one, that you've got this whole expanse of stuff. Like a bag little, full of marbles. About, like a bag full of marbles, but, but uh, you know, each marble sort of joins on in a funny way to the next one. These are really very difficult models to test. Uh, and as you said, there was some evidence of an, um, a, perhaps of another universe leaving its imprint on what we call the cosmic microwave background radiation. This is the flash of the Big Bang, which we can still see. It has, it has patterns on it from which we can learn a lot. And it has been suggested that a cold region in that uh, area of the, the, the sky uh, perhaps is due to a collision universe a long time ago. These are things that are very, very difficult to prove. Perhaps some um, gravitational wave astronomy will allow us to uh, to understand whether there are other universes, because the, the, it is possible that gravitational uh, radiation, if, that, if you could call it that, in other words, gravity, actually leaks out of universes and might be able to cross the void between one universe and another. So we might eventually find out that, yes, there are other universes around. Uh, the moment it's pure speculation yes wouldn't it be fascinating though uh there's so much to learn and so little time uh now <laughs> exactly. to, to part two of brad's question uh with the new james webb telescope uh will we be able to see past the last galaxy that the hubble um took a photo of a while back can it reach out that far and um yeah that's the substance of his question how far past the last galaxy can we see can we see past there at all so um, unlike the last uh, of Brad's questions, this one has a very short answer, which is yes. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so uh, the, the James Webb Telescope will, like the Hubble, it has the advantage of being above the Earth's atmosphere. It's in space. It's, it, it, you know, it's, it gets a very clear view of the universe. Um, and, but unlike the Hubble, it's a big telescope. It's got a six and a half meter diameter mirror. The Hubble is 2.4 meters. Uh, so uh, it will see much fainter objects. Therefore, it will see beyond the limits that the Hubble telescope set. And in fact, we expect the James Webb Space Telescope to be able to detect by looking back in time, which is what you do when you look out into space, it, to be able to detect to be able to detect the first galaxies that formed in the universe. And, uh, well, we're all looking forward to it very much. It's going to be a project that will tell us much, much more about the universe that we live in and hopefully give Space Nuts and the Peanut Gallery many, many more opportunities to interact in the future. Yes, Thanks indeed. very much for your questions, Brad. They're excellent questions, and it's great to receive them. Yes, indeed. We, we do appreciate it. Uh, Fred, thank you so much. Nice to talk to you as always. And you too, uh, Andrew. We'll speak again soon. I hope so. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you for listening to Space Nuts every week. We, uh, we certainly do appreciate and we love your feedback and we certainly love your questions. So you can pipe them through to us uh, via the World Wide Web on our Facebook page and uh, we'll do our best to answer them for you either on the podcast or directly through our uh, Facebook page. We answer some of them there as well. Uh, and uh, don't forget to tell your friends about us. Don't forget Space Time with Stuart Gary, our sister uh, podcast, available through most podcasting flat, uh, platforms, Audio Boom, Stitcher, um, Apple Podcasts. The, the list is long. And, uh, yeah, keep on listening. We'll catch you next time on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts Podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audio Boom, and Stitcher, or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.